0: Anyway, hi, my name is Kevin, and I am an alcoholic.
1: So this Friday is my dad. Is He's speaking at an AA conference in 2011 during the longest period of sobriety in his adult life. And this is the part of the story about how our family fell apart. I'm Kat O'Shaughnessy-Kaufran, and you're listening to Lost and Found my audio documentary about trying to unravel the complex relationships and heal the losses of my parents so that I could find my truth and reclaim where I come from. This is chapter four, the shadow of my drunk father. By all accounts, my dad's drinking kicked into high gear early in my childhood. But the breakdown of our family took years. I was born in 1982, and my parents didn't split until the end of 1995. The divorce became final that following spring. Coming into this project, what I wanted to better understand about all of this was what happened during all of those years? If my parents and all of us really We're so wrapped up in navigating this disease all that time. Did anybody know? Why did my mom stick it out for so long? And how might that experience have shaped me? I do remember feeling love as a child. I remember being silly and creative with my sister, though. I was also painfully shy and very serious. How do I reconcile all these foggy, sometimes conflicting memories? How can I try to see it a little bit more clearly? I hoped that maybe some other people could help. What do you remember in those the youngest years?
2: I kind of feel like you were always a little adult. Really? Like... ah. Huh. I had all these really bad ideas. And you were like, that doesn't make any sense. Like you had this like part of your brain that worked that mine didn't. I was like, no, really? Like we should shove Legos up our nose. It's a really good idea. And you were like, I am not doing that.
1: This is Carissa, my first best friend. We met when we were about three at preschool.
2: That's what I mean. Partially, like I've you've always kind of been this little adult, like you're making good choices, but you've But you were very, you were serious.
1: It's true. I was a serious kid. After talking to Carissa, I started to remember how reserved I became. Later in elementary school, especially. Because that's when I started to see things a little more clearly at home that I had only sensed when I was younger. In fifth grade, it really happened during a session of D.A.R.E., or for anyone who isn't a child of the 80s. Drug Abuse Resistance Education at school. The local police taught the program, and something in the curriculum prompted me to come home and confide to my mother, I think Dad might be an alcoholic. She always said later that this was a turning point for her. When she began to realize she couldn't trust Dad with us, that we were aware of what was going on. And when she started to really ask him to get help, we were all in denial before that. And both of my parents worked pretty hard to hide it. But it seems like eventually everyone began to catch on. Here's my Uncle Doll.
0: I didn't accept it at first. I said, oh, that's bullshit, you know. I just thought it was some, you know, some whining going on, but I didn't realize that there was trouble there. And um, then we came out to your house in Issaquah there for dinner, a couple times and Kevin was shit-faced and it was really sad to see it. You know, he, he was sweatpants and old t-shirt, you know, and his hair was dirty and he was stumbling around and all of a sudden I realized that it was a bad
3: situation.
1: And this is Jim dad's best friend and former housemate.
3: He did a real good job of hiding it because, um, yeah, we would, um, I remember there were days when I would say to Sandy, you know, Kev seems to be off lately and, um, you know, maybe quieter than normal or, you know, not really participating like he normally did. And, uh, I'd make a comment here and there. And at that point, um, because we started coaching like in '88. And so, you know, and we went through, like, 96 that we were coaching. And so that was kind of a time frame. And yeah, um, um, we didn't – we weren't really doing other things together anymore. You know, that was kind of our get-together, you know, was on the field doing that. And um, so – yeah, so we kind of, you know, and and Sherry was, she was pretty wrapped up in her business. And so that seemed to be consuming most of her energies. And, um, you know, Kev was like, I think he was kind of like the Mr. Mom, wasn't
1: he? Dad and Jim coached youth soccer for both of us and our teams. And then after we eventually dropped out, Dad continued coaching with Jim when his kid stuck with it. And it's true, Mom was consumed with growing her school. She was running that business while Dad wasn't able to hold down a job. Amidst everything else that she had to juggle, it was just so much. I was struck that Jim referred to Dad as Mr. Mom because, yes, on the one hand, he was around. He wasn't going to a job anymore, though I think he wished he was. But on the other hand, he certainly wasn't available to us. The more that I thought about it, the more that I couldn't really imagine how mom held it all together for so long without an active, available partner. I asked her friends whether she leaned on any of them during
4: this time. I had no idea that your dad had been in alcohol treatment, like, like that she mortgaged the house like three times or
5: something.
1: I had no idea. That was just a shock. She shot. hadn't really shared that with you. Oh, uh, no, no, no.
5: Because she was was yeah struggling to, to hold it together because Oh yeah, yeah, your mom wanted to hold it together.
4: Our mom was trying so hard with her childhood. I think she really wanted to give us the most idyllic childhood, happy childhood that she didn't have, that she spent most of her time and energy covering up what our dad was suffering with and acting like everything was fine. Yes, we had these, you know, these memories and these things that we did, but it was always kind of a facade because we weren't really happy and it wasn't really a functional family. But I think for her, she just wanted so badly to give us this childhood she didn't have that she didn't realize in doing that She didn't give us the things that we needed.
1: That was us during those years. Dad became wrapped up in his drinking. Around, but not around. Present, but unavailable. Mom worked overtime to keep everything together. And Jen and I carried the weight of their sadness around.
2: I remember when your dad, when you first told me your dad was an alcoholic and you said, please don't tell anybody, don't tell your mom. Don't tell your dad because they won't let you come over to my house anymore. Oh, my gosh. How old were we? It was probably like 10 or 11. And we were sitting in my bedroom and you were like, and you were whispering, like, please don't tell them because they're not going to let you come over. And I was like, I think they will. Like, I'm not that worried about it. And you were like really worried.
1: I worried. All the time. And then came Hawaii, the beginning of the end. It was interesting to hear what my dad had to say about what had happened there.
0: We were married for 20-some-odd years, so it was, it was quite a while after, but the the, the marriage had been going pretty bad. And I remember in uh, 1995, and we were in Hawaii, and I was constantly drunk. And uh, to this day, my two children uh, have bad, bad memories of Hawaii. To them... It, it, it's a bad place. So you think that What did I do to these people? What did I do to my children? What have I done to my ex-wife?
1: The most insidious thing about addiction is the amnesia. In the worst moments, my dad would black out. He knew bad things had happened in Hawaii, but he didn't have to carry those memories around with him. We did. I must have realized this early on because... I began documenting. I wrote everything down, like a little historian, trying to hold on to whatever memories I could so that maybe I could make sense of them later. When I was 13, I documented everything that happened in those few years that ended their marriage, including Hawaii. I pieced them all together into an essay that I titled A Window to My Heart, and I turned it into my 8th grade English teacher, Mr. Sheber here's what i wrote in there about hawaii quote hawaii i never want to hear that word again just the sound of it reminds me of everything all the pain the horror the fighting end quote our trip was in early 1995 right after dad had completed another rehab program in my essay I document the way that my mom had reacted when we arrived, and she discovers the liquor that he'd packed into his suitcase right after he left rehab. I also capture the brutal way that he fell off the wagon, how we had begun to recognize that distinct bloodshot look that signaled his vacancy and the way that he stumbled down the beach angrily stalking away from us when I asked him outright if he was drunk. I described him then in this paper as, quote, a five-year-old boy who couldn't face his own problems who wanted us to become his parents, end quote. But the passage that makes my heartache the most is this one, describing a particularly horrible night When my mother came to sleep with Jen and I in the living room to help us feel safe, I wrote. I woke up with a strange instinct that someone was watching me. In the corner of my eye, I could barely make out the shadow of my dad standing in the corner. He stayed there most of the night. To this day, I still don't know for sure if he was really there or not. Even now, there will be times when I think I see that shadow in the corner of my room late at night. When this happens, I just close my eyes and pretend to sleep. It's almost as if I think that if I'm asleep, no one can hurt me, not even the shadow of my drunk father." End
2: quote. The
1: shadow of my drunk father. It loomed large in those years even after my parents finally divorced, and my dad receded into the background, showing up according to my diaries, only every so often, to go see the new Star Wars films or watch my plays or attend a graduation ceremony. Eventually, I moved across the country for college, taking out loans and drawing new boundaries with the hopes that I wouldn't have to worry so much about whether he was drinking or not. It only sort of worked, but I never got hostile with him. He didn't want to have to talk about his struggles with sobriety. And once I got that distance, I was happy to oblige. We spoke, we emailed, mostly surface level updates and sarcastic jokes. My sister's experience, though, was a little bit different. She's three years older than me, well, three years and two days which made her 16 at the time that they split
4: up. So what do you remember about their divorce? I was really angry. I was really angry that we had to move. I was really angry we had to live in an apartment. I remember, I mean, the apartment was fine, but I was just angry we had to leave our house and our animals and live somewhere else. Unfortunately, that's the time that I was a lot more independent because I could drive, you know? So that kind of sparked my like rebellious phase, as we can maybe say, you know, where I didn't have to be around that I could escape it and go do things and not be there. And honestly, I think at that point, I was like, so selfish and so angry that I didn't really think about how that was like leaving you behind with, you know, mom, just being so depressed and so withdrawn. Do you
1: remember that changing? Like, did the rage evolve into something new
4: at some point? Um, I don't know. I remember the rage towards, I don't think the rage is ever towards mom. I just remember the rage towards dad. Um, and then even in college, like I remember still being really angry at him and I kind of like disowned him for a while. So that anger lasted a really long time, but I do remember it must've been my senior year and my freshman year of college. I I don't remember having much of a relationship at all with him at that point. And I was really off the rails those years. Like completely like
1: just unhinged. This was always a key difference for us. Jen owned her right to be angry. And I remember my approach was more about good behavior. Like if I don't cause any problems, if I'm really, really good, if I get great grades, maybe he'll realize what a mistake this is and stop drinking. Jen it out. She gave all of us somebody something to worry about that wasn't dad. And it caused a strange shift in the dynamics of our whole family, even once we were broken apart. There's this weird thing that happened when I was around 16. Jen went off to college at the University of Arizona. And mom was so worried about her. That She started to go to Tucson more regularly. She found a way to make it work with her school. She opened up a branch down in Tucson, a place she'd always wanted to spend time anyway, in the desert. And I just responsibly carried on living in our apartment, working my jobs, making sure no one was worried about me. It was one of those things that we just sort of accepted at the time. She wasn't completely gone. She came home maybe a week, a month in those last two years of high school. But for all intents and purposes, she left. And years later, I started to look back and get really mad. I just felt like I was completely abandoned and nobody ever really talked about that.
4: So you were still in high school. You were like a junior in high school. Were you just by yourself? That's what I wonder. I was Jen. She loved, I don't think anyone's like, so she would come down to Arizona and she'd visit me and she would still be flying around the United States and doing talks and visiting colleges, but you were in high school. You weren't even an adult. So, and I don't, I think you were just by yourself. I don't think there was anyone taking care of you or checking. Like that's Mm -hmm. insane.
1: Do you remember one of the things we found was a letter on like nerdy U of A head header that you sent me and it was maybe my college, my high school graduation. And you said, you are so strong. It was the sweetest letter. And you're like, you're so strong. You've been through so much. You're so independent. I'm so proud of you. And it was so sweet because I remember our relationship being like really strong around that time. Yeah. And so I want, but I don't think either of us were able to see it for what it was. No. I think that we spent so much time normalizing it. But that's crazy.
4: I know. That's crazy that you were left alone like that.
1: Believe it or not, this is the first time Jen and I ever talked about this. This is what I meant way back in the beginning when I said, suddenly memories can start to betray you or feel a little slippery if you look really closely. I did approach my mom about this once. And one of the only truly honest conversations I feel we ever really had, it was in that sweet spot between when I went away to college, I started to find my footing, begin therapy, started to reconcile some of the stuff we'd been through. And mom's mind hadn't started to slip yet. We were sitting in a parking lot in Tucson. And I said, mom, I realized you left when I was still a child, I needed you. And I'll never forget, she cried. And she looked at me and she said, you were so good at convincing me that you were okay. And I think I just really needed to believe you. And I'm sorry. And in the end, We never really talked to dad about any of this either. As adults, we settled into a polite, sometimes funny, but never honest sort of relationship. We typically schedule visits once a year or a little less often. So it was interesting when we got a hold of this 2011 testimonial recording that I've been playing for you, which we didn't actually get until after he had died. So we could hear what he had to say about everything. It turns out in 2011, he had been sober for a little over three years, which I hadn't known before, was the longest period of sobriety in his whole adult life. One that we know, but he didn't at the time of the recording. Wouldn't last. Here he is talking about Jen's wedding, which had been a few years before.
0: So my uh, oldest daughter gets married at 29 and then I'd been sober for uh, six months. So I actually get an invitation to her wedding. She lives in Tucson, so I go to her wedding. I'm sober, though. I get invited to this, and I didn't think that would happen. I really didn't, because she's the one that had stopped communication with me when I was arrested. She absolutely refused to talk to me for about six months. That hurt her so bad. It's just bringing up those things in the past that happened, the divorce. You know, they blame me for the divorce, I blame me for the divorce, so I can't really hold that against them. So I go down to their wedding and Ronnie goes with me and it was kind of interesting, we had the, so, what do they call that, the, the rehearsal, right, where you go to the, they're having a country club, but they're doing the rehearsal where you, they line everybody up in the order they're going to be, how they're going to walk out here and do this kind of stuff, and so I'm standing there and they go, the one that's organizing goes, where's the father? father? Okay, father over here, she takes me back at the back of the thing and puts me by the little kids, they <laughs> go, oh well. At least I'm in at least I'm in the thing walking out to the altar. I'm back here by the little kids, but I'm behind my ex-wife who's in front of me. So um, so I think, well, at least she invited me, so I'm really glad for that. And also my daughter turns around and goes, Where's my dad? I go, right here. She goes, You're supposed to be up here. You're giving me away. Wow. And I did. You know. And up until that time I didn't expect it. I really didn't. And I didn't know that would happen. You know, what a wonderful thing. And and, and I'll always remember the, the, the day of her wedding, we're standing there, we're getting ready to do the march, and she's got her dress on, I got my tux on, we're standing there, and she's just crying. And I turned to her, I said, you know, typical me fashion, I said, you know, my car's right there, it's not too late.
1: <laughs> we first listened to this recording the month that he died. I remember it being a roller coaster, feeling anger and grief and also laughing. And love as we listen together to his version of these events.
0: And then another thing has happened to me that's been totally wonderful, which I never thought would happen in all my drinking days. My oldest daughter had a child. So now, I'm not going to tell you what I am. I'm not a grandfather. Anyway, anyway, I'm a grandfather. Okay. I admit it. I'm a grandfather. I'm way too young to be a grandfather, and I told her she's way too young at thirty to have a kid, but she wouldn't listen to me. So so she's got a she's got a child and you her knowing my, my addiction past, you know, will she ever allow me to be around her child? I've always wondered that, will she? So they moved from well they are in Tucson, so when it was a month old, when I flew down there and she wants me to hold her child. I couldn't believe. It. Me? Yeah. So it's been a long time since I had a little infant, you know, I'm really don't know how to do this anymore. And she wanted me to hold it. She says, here's your grandfather.
1: The sobriety didn't last. It never did. There's a cycle of sorts where he'd be doing just fine, and then... Something might happen that would knock him off the wagon and he'd disappear. That was his MO. He'd plan ahead sometimes check into a hotel and just drink for days. We'd worry and worry, trading phone calls and texts all across the country until one day he'd turn up again. It was such a thankless cycle. And I just felt stuck in it over and over. You would be consumed by worry and then suddenly he'd come back and we'd all have to find a way to carry on. Until one day, finally, January 14th, 2016. When it was all over, I remember being at the airport the day before, the day that I left, which was either one or two days before he had died, before we found out he was dead. And Jen sent me a text and said, um, Hey, have you heard from dad? And it was one of those, how many times had we gone through this? And I got home and finally you called me and I knew before you said it.
5: I know, I thought, uh, because. we were at a um, sundown or sundown ranch uh, with his counselor one time, and I went for the weekend family day type thing. And um, we went to meet his counselor, and we sat there, and, you know, the usual questions and stuff. And then she says, what are your biggest fears? And I said, uh, finding him dead and having to call his family. And it totally came through.
4: It did. <laughs> Because I
5: didn't want to have to do that.
1: This is Ronnie. She was my dad's girlfriend for many, many years. I think they were actually together as long as my parents. They had broken up a year or two before he died as things were really beginning to spiral. But we've always stayed close. And she was the one who had to break the news in the very end. Dad shut himself into his house. He sat down in his recliner and he drank until it was over. The newspaper delivery guy was the first one to notify the police who then found him. Still sitting right there. But gone. Do you do you think he wanted to die in the end? Do you
5: think he was trying? Yeah, he was just drinking himself to death.
1: You told me about how he had had this like fantasy that he had shared with you once that one day he would just get on a train with maybe some alcohol and just ride away.
5: suitcase. And he did that a few months before he died. So he got on a train in Eugene and rode it to Washington, rode it to, I don't know, someplace, Bedford or something. And um, that's how he always said he wanted to go out just riding a train and drunk himself to death.
1: What do you think he would say to Jen and I? What do you think?
4: What he'd would want he us say? That
5: how much he loved you guys. How proud. Um, Wish you would have spent more time with the grants You know that type of stuff. Take you out on the boat. Let's get some crabs.
1: <laughs> Love that there boat. There would have been more crabs. <laughs> <laughs>
5: I mean, your dad was a tortured soul, but you know, he had so many good parts. He really did. He did. Yeah. Yeah. He did. And he loved you guys and he loved this dog.
1: I don't hate my dad. I never did. A few weeks before he died, as his body began to shut down, his sponsor called me in DC and said I should come out to visit. So I called Jen. We both cleared our work schedules and then I flew into Seattle and together we made the seven hour drive to where he lived in Coos Bay, Oregon. We didn't go there to save him or to beg him to stop drinking. The time for that had so long passed. We went there to say goodbye. He was so frail by then. Still tall, but skin and bones. Barely a whisper of the man he'd once been. He was just about to turn 66, and he was ready to die. We sat with him for a while, telling him we weren't there to ask for anything. He seemed kind of scared that we were. We just wanted to say goodbye. We shared some stories. We told him about the good memories that we would always carry with us. We all cried. And dad said he was terrified that we might end up sick like him. Eventually the conversation ran its course, so we got up to leave. He gave us these fragile little hugs. And then he slowly walked back to his recliner and sat down it was the last we saw of him. Even in the end, he didn't fight to get more time with us. Not much changed for me in terms of my perspectives about him throughout this process. But what I can see now that I could never totally appreciate when I was closer to this whole experience was how much harder I worked to forgive him than he ever did. I was so invested in that tragic hero story, so ready to place the blame for everything that happened on his shooting, on that one specific turn of events. But now I can see how much my dad lived in fear, not of a bank robber in the woods with a gun, but of alcohol and the power that it had over him.
0: But I do have to say one thing, because we were talking about the other day was fear. And uh, you know, there's this fear of you know, change in an alcoholic's life. Alcoholics don't like change. Fear of change. And so they're going around and talking about, and I was thinking in my own head, fear. What are the situations in my life that I've had fear? And what am I afraid of? What, what is f- true fear to me? And I was recalling a situation I was on the police department and, and I ran into an ambush and I got shot twice and I'm on the ground. And the, the person that shot me announces to me verbally that he's gonna come out and he's gonna finish me off and he's gonna take my life. Now at that time, I should have been afraid. So I was thinking about that, I said, actually I wasn't. You know, I was pissed because he shot my dog first before he shot me. You know, nobody shoots my dog. It's just like you know, people with motorcycles, you lay your motorcycle down, you jump up and check your bike before you. So I wasn't, I wasn't afraid then. And so I'm saying, well, what is fear in me? And it occurred to me, I have the biggest fear of alcohol. Alcohol is there for me, it is waiting for me, and it's gonna crush me if I give it the chance.
1: For so long, I tried to figure out where to place the blame. My father's alcoholism was the defining element of my childhood, my adolescence, and frankly, so many things that followed. In that essay, A Window to My Heart, the one that I wrote in eighth grade, I wrote that I knew that I couldn't blame my dad because it was just a disease and you can't blame someone who has cancer, right? That's actually what I wrote. And I said, I can't blame mom because she's just doing what she thinks is best, right? But when I look back at that now, what I see between those lines, whether I actually knew it or not, was when we tell children that they can't blame their parent with an addiction. Who else are we telling them to blame? I carried that blame so, so deep that I didn't even know that it was there. The blame I felt on me for the things that happened to my family. And in revisiting that testimonial and talking to all these people who loved dad and who loved mom. And hearing my father's own words again, what I realize now is that he gave up on himself so long before I ever did. He did blame himself for the way our family ended. And I think he loathed himself for never having the strength to stop drinking.
0: And for me, sobriety has been difficult. I mean, I would not recommend to anybody to attain sobriety the way I did, and it was—it's been difficult. My first meeting I went to was 1995, and uh, as you can tell, that's oh, 16 years ago. I've got three years, so you can tell has been been—it's been a long road.
1: It was a long road, and through all of this, I don't think I ever gave my mother the gratitude she truly deserved. The end of her life, much like the beginning of it, was complicated. And everything in between, it was tragic as well. But that's where this whole project really changed me, was in my relationship with my mom. So that's what we'll get into next time. And chapter five, The Stone in My Pocket.
3: Okay. Fogging up the glass. I trace the skyline with my finger. I'm wondering where you.